Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Thank you for listening. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to tell you about two things. One, our online platform, Classroom Secrets Kids. At the moment, it's only £1 a child for the year and it has thousands of activities that are aligned to the curriculum, can be accessed digitally and are automatically marked for you. So if you haven't done so yet, go to kids.classroomsecrets.co.uk to grab your 14-day free trial for the whole class. And number two, we're on Clubhouse a lot. So we're hosting four education chats each week on Clubhouse. It's the new audio social media platform. They're on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays and we would love for you to get involved. So you'll be able to quiz the panel about all things education and you'll be able to add your own value too. So each week the rooms are really growing and the conversations are really inspiring. And if you haven't heard of Clubhouse, it's still pretty new when it's in the beta phase. There's only 2 million users at the moment, but there's more and more joining every day. So because you're listening to a podcast now, you'll just love it. At the moment, it's invite only, so keep your ear to the ground and see if you can get an invite from a friend that already has access. And if you are already there, if you're that lucky, then follow me at Claire Riley and I'll follow you back. So in this episode, I interviewed Sam Strickland about school improvement. It was really interesting to hear about this from a positive and supportive perspective. So Sam is currently the principal of the Dunstan School and is passionate about sharing his expertise in leadership and school transformation with his peers. He's the author of Education Exposed 1 and Education Exposed 2, where he shares his key insights into school improvement, touching on everything from the curriculum to personal development. Let's get to the interview with Sam. Sam, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Thank you ever so much for having me. Real privilege to be here. So I'm really excited about this because it's something that I've not heard of before. So let's get really deep into it. So for you, school improvement is about how schools can allow the halcyon dream to become a reality. So can you tell me more about the phrase halcyon dream in this context and how that connects to teaching? Yeah, so in my book, Education Exposed 2, um, in pursuit of the housing dream, I define what the housing dream is. And, and if you sort of cast your mind back to why you became a teacher, this really it's the start. That's the starting point of this idea of the housing dream. And whenever I deliver training um, you know, regionally, nationally, and I ask this kind of question or whenever I ask this question um, during interviews for jobs or if I even think back to my own teacher training, the answers tend to be broadly the same. There's a real sense of moral purpose. There's a real sense of wanting to help children to learn. Um, there's a sense of wanting to drive your subject or array of subjects if you're a primary phase teacher um, and a real passion for teaching, the, you know, the vocation, the profession mm-hmm. in its own right. Um, so really, the housing dream is that it's that ability to teach children without a lot of the, the nonsense and the white noise that gets in the way of it. So it does that- sound like a dream, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. And you think of all the red tape that we have to yeah. kind of go through as a profession and, and the things that get in the way um, of, of what we, we try, we're trying to achieve with, with you know, the children in our classrooms. And really, it's giving teachers the chance to think really carefully about their curriculum design 
their their own subject knowledge and subject expertise, the the opportunity to produce resources that are relevant to the delivery of their lessons. Um, And it's really giving staff the time to do the actual job rather than all the other stuff that we think is important, but actually is a detraction from what we're trying to to achieve with children. I have to say so far, it, it sounds like the solution to the biggest problem we have. Yeah, it's almost that kind of um, you know Valhalla ideal, isn't it? Really, uh, and in terms of you know school improvement, well, this is where the magic happens. However much we want to kind of dress up all the, the you know the wider things that we might do with with children, with pupils, and schools, ultimately the person that makes the biggest difference, or the people that make the biggest difference, are the people in the classroom with the children, mm. the teachers, and the TAs. You know, everything else is kind of superfluous, really, in many regards, um, and and. and so John Jones describes it as the you know the magic weaving business and 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 that's I completely agree with that that this is where the magic happens in the classrooms and if we can get the quality first teaching is kind of the you know the the jargonistic phrase used within the profession but if we can get that right then most of the other things that we think um, we need to be doing perhaps we don't and perhaps we don't need to be Mm. burning teachers out in the way that we do. Wow sounds amazing okay so as we were preparing for this episode then you mentioned that achieving the halcyon dream is about getting rid of the nonsense and creating a streamlined approach to leadership and teaching so what do you see then as the core teaching role i'm I'm really interested to find this out so in terms of the core teaching role or if i think about my own school context we give all of our um staff a, a weekly uh, one hour departmental or subject team meeting or, or year group meeting as in you know if you think about the primary phases we're in all through so year one the two teachers driving year one get mm-hmm. to meet for an hour a week together after school and we give them the lion's share of our directed time and that's for them to think really carefully about curriculum design the curriculum enactment um the any shortfalls in subject knowledge that they might have and co-planning of, um, of resources. So we've got a big team. It's easier to do this than when you're flying kind of solo on your own, of course. But the more co-planning that we can do and the more eyes that we have on the curriculum and our resource design uh, for lessons uh, and indeed upskilling one another in terms of subject knowledge, the better, really, because it's that division of labour you haven't got. Um, you know, colleague X up till 1 a.m. burning the, the midnight oil, trying to, to plan their lessons for tomorrow. Mm. And, and if I think about my English department, which is 13 strong, it's almost nonsensical to send all of those people home and to plan the same year seven lesson for tomorrow morning first thing but they all plan something similar but different Mm. and they've all spent two or three hours planning that lesson when actually collectively they might have been able to get it done in 20 or 30 minutes and produce something that's real quality Mm. so it's it's giving staff that breathing space to think about the core job which is teaching yeah just a question so you mentioned about um having the hour to think about curriculum design which i think is amazing do you do you do any training around, you know, how to design the curriculum? Yeah, yeah, we do. So if I, if I think about my journey um, as principal in the school that I'm currently in, I joined in April of 2017. And the first year was about the culture, the climate and the ethos of, of the school, because it's a big all through school. And to be fair, that was more a necessity for the secondary phase rather than the primary phase. Um, but about seven to eight months into my tenure once we'd got that ball up and running and moving we started to shift the curriculum bias 
um, which was heavily skills driven. And I know there's a huge debate about skills and knowledge, but we wanted to bring more knowledge into our curriculum design and curriculum delivery. But we spent a lot of time and I d deliberately drove this training all of my middle leaders in what the curriculum actually is. So we, we drilled it down to the basics of just what does what, what's the definition of the curriculum? What does the curriculum mean? What is the, the planned curriculum, the enacted curriculum? We looked at curriculum theory. We looked at curriculum principles. We've looked at curriculum um, enactment strategies. So we've looked at, you know, Doug Lamov is a classic example, which many schools do do. Rosenshine is another example. Uh, we're part of the research ed scene as a school and we've, we've housed our own uh, and we've got staff to go to that. Um, we've obviously shared that training as well with the wider staffing body. Um, and then about three years in, we started to bring in external people to the school deliberately because what I wanted from my own perspective as the, as the principal of the school was a, a, a similar but different voice, if that makes sense. Mm. There's a danger that if you're the one constantly saying the same thing, it can become tiresome, I suppose. To prove so, that you actually maybe know something. Well, say that as well. So, you know, in terms of examples, we've had Tom Sherrington in to deliver curriculum training. We've had Mary Myatt. We've had Christine Councillors. Just a few examples to deliver sort of two, three-hour workshops to staff. But it's something that we we never are going to drop you know as a, as a priority it's because it's an ongoing priority that takes almost a lifetime to get your curriculum where you want it to be and in in previous kind of podcasts and um, talks that I've delivered we talked about how really even four years in we're a pinprick into our curriculum design and whilst mm. we profess to have a knowledge rich curriculum it still is really in its infancy it's going to take another five or six years to get it remotely to where I want it to be and then we'll probably have to continue doing more and more and more to it. But in answer to your question, yeah, we, we've done a lot around um, curriculum training. We've also set up our own um, action research team, which we call DART. So it's the Dustin Action Research Team. It's for volunteers, so you're not forced to do it. We've got about 25 members of staff that are part of this group. Um, they get three days of ring fence time um, to, to work together. Uh, and they also very deliberately meet every Friday morning off their own back um, for half an hour before the school day starts. That's a voluntary thing on their part. Um, but we give them priority um, for things like MPQs, masters, um, qualifications uh, and any other courses that they want to go on because they're, they're kind of, I guess they're putting themselves out there in terms of mm. what they're doing. But each person creates their own action research project, curriculum based. They look at the theory behind it. They enact it in maybe one class, maybe two classes. It's up to them, really, in terms of how wide they want that to be, because it's their project. And they then present their findings to one another. I'm invited to hear what their findings are. I don't direct any of this very deliberately, because otherwise it becomes, you know, me driving it. And that's not yeah, really yeah. what it's meant to be. Um, but they maintain a blog, which we're looking to get published with the Charter College. And they go out to... Um, national conferences as well so educating north ants we've had members of staff deliver there the research head scene we've had members of staff deliver talks um, at those events as well and that's really powerful because that's again thinking about the curriculum and of course we get those staff to train the rest of the staff as well in, in terms of their findings whether they're good bad or indifferent so a major kind of school improvement driver for us is is the curriculum and it, and it will always be that's amazing two points i just want to pick up on there mm. you know i was um I was in the classroom for about six years and I can tell you that I never had any kind of training um, on curriculum. And the funny thing is, is that when I first started teaching, I set up a whole department by myself. <laughs> um, 
with with none of that. Yeah. Um, so one, well done, and I think that's amazing. Um, and the second thing has completely flown out of my mind. <laughs> what was it? Um, yeah, you said something really interesting. Tell me what you said just last. Thankfully, she'll be able to cut this bit out. Yeah, so sorry. The the last bit was about um, oh the research, the research group, yeah, research heads. Okay, and and secondly, the fact that you're doing research that's amazing. One thing that I say on the podcast that I've noticed with um, with the guests who I've had, Mm. usually people who have gone on to either do other things after teaching or they're doing something at the same time is the fact that they've been trusted by the head teacher, by the leadership team to try something out. And one of the things that worries me a little bit, um, uh, we actually talk about this quite a bit on Clubhouse, yeah. is that as a leader of a business now in education, I, I am fully aware as, as a leader of a business that I have to accept the risk that sometimes things don't work out, especially say in marketing, mm. give marketing a budget, you know, yes, they've got to try and get to a certain point, but there's no guarantee mm. that, you know, it will be successful. Whereas I feel sometimes in, in teaching, you're not really given that space to test something out. And if yeah. you are given that space, it's kind of expected that you've got to succeed yeah, and you can't fail. So I think it's, it's a really special place to be, mm. to be in a school that does allow that. So well done for that. Thank you. Okay. Right. So let's get on to the uh, next question. So why are you passionate then about school improvement and allowing the halcyon dream to become a reality for schools? Yeah. I mean, school improvement is is the key way in which schools, you know, kind of the name's on the tin, isn't it really? The way in which they improve. I don't mean that in a, in a corny sense, but ultimately in terms of, of how we go about it and, and what, what's actually the core priorities for schools, I really worry uh, and I've worked in schools where this has happened, where you wait for, in a secondary sense, exam results days, um, or in the primary sense, you wait for SATs results, and then you create your school improvement plan for next year. It's kind of reactive. If I put it in a, in a footballing sense, it's waiting for the Premier League uh, to end before you then start planning your next season now. And I can't imagine you know, Pep Guardiola at Man City doing that. I'd imagine he's always planning for the future. Um, so in terms of the, the housing dream, um, again, if I go back to my, my previous answer to this in terms of what is it, that's where the magic happens. Allowing teachers to teach in the classroom, undisturbed by all of the other nonsense and chaff that we throw into the system, will allow them actually to teach far more fluidly, with a greater degree of um, trust, with a greater degree of freedom, probably a greater de- um, to a greater sense Um, an absence of fear that if something goes wrong that they've got to worry about it Mm. Um, but equally you know give you one example emails is a is a certainly in a secondary school or a big primary school is a killer because of the volume of them yeah and we try to restrict those quite a lot um which is something I'm, i'm almost a little bit polemic about in many regards but if you know that your email inbox isn't sort of chugging away while you're teaching there isn't the temptation to check your laptop you're actually going to devote your time and attention to the pupils in the classroom um, and to my mind, the thing that's going to make the biggest difference to, to pupil um, outcomes, to pupil experiences, to pupil enjoyment is that interaction with the teacher in the room, which is you know, undisturbed by by anything else. 
and even down to our performance management model that's moved heavily away from data metrics being the main driver um, for you know assessing your performance review to actually a coaching model where we've we've asked staff to think about one particular aspect of their uh, pedagogy their um, you know classroom enacted um, delivery to work on throughout the year which will marry up with their professional development externally um, and that's the only thing that they need to focus on for the year and it's that I guess it's the accumulation of marginal gains in a business sense that if every single teacher yeah. is improving one element of their practice but doing it properly and doing it with real intent rather than giving it lip service because we've given it 30 seconds for you to think about then institutionally that actually makes a huge difference but it's being brave to take that quantum leap in terms of your approach, because your natural tendency is to go with things that may have worked in the past or that you're, mm. um, you know, you're, you're led to believe are the right things to do. It's that kind of leopard trying to change its spots sort or of syndrome. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? We, we have a lot of synergies. Um, so we've actually changed to a, a coach approach as well and and we're working on marginal gains um as a company so that's brilliant i think you know i know when i was in teaching never really heard of a coaching school mm. and i know that it's becoming more of a thing but i i can completely see how it works and um i'd love to see i mean i'm seeing more and more coaches popping up anyway mm. but i do think this is something that we need to be moving towards absolutely really yeah exciting. i'd agree i think it's got huge legs and it's one you've got to change hearts and minds um, on. Um, most notably, I don't mean this critically, governors who are used to data metrics being the yeah. main way of judging a school. I mean, the way I build it to, to my governing body is you judge me by the results, but I'll judge the staff by the quality of and effectiveness of delivery, but not through a, a normal QA sense of going in and weighing the pig, because we, we don't do that either. And also... I suppose for, for a teacher, it feels more in their control as well. I remember, I mean, I was in a really tough school and um, we we taught performing arts to all of you and I, not that they wanted to learn it. Um, but And I was going to be judged based on what they would get as grades when they didn't, they didn't sign up to that. They didn't want to do it. Um, and even if they did sign up to it, no guarantee they want to do it. Maybe it was just better than doing French. Um, so, <laughs> So when you feel very, um, you know, when you feel accountable for that, that, that can be quite difficult. So, yeah, I think that's brilliant. OK, then. So this is always my favourite question. What three actionable steps can you share then for teachers and schools in regards to school improvement? Yeah, from, uh, so from, from the first stance, it's leadership taking responsibility for the school. And I don't mean that in, um, in a critical sense of, of other senior leaders, but behavior and culture is certainly one that mm. senior leadership should be driving and how you do that in your own setting is up to you of course because every school every setting is completely different but I think the senior team should be taking responsibility for behavior that's not to disempower teachers but it's actually to support them um, but in terms of of, te of teachers themselves I think their focus should really be on curriculum which I know we've already talked about but that is when you take away behaviour and the culture of a school, if that's kind of where it, you want it to be, that the next thing that's going to have the biggest impact mm -hmm. is the design of your curriculum, the thought that's gone into your curriculum, thinking really carefully about what is it that you want the pupils to know by the end of any one given lesson, any one given week, any one given term, any one given academic year, and how that all links together. 
that's really important and that takes a lot of time to think about and think you know really carefully and deeply about i would argue subject knowledge as well is hugely important if you know from a from a teacher perspective and certainly thinking about primary colleagues who've got to be the master of all trades really in terms of juggling so many different subjects and if you're a, a year five year six teacher i'm not saying we should teach the test in terms of sats but the demands of sats mm. are, are almost like a level in many regards you know there's so much that, that, that teachers have got to know and it's having the time and the freedom really to ensure that you're fully upskilled on, on that front um, and then I, I would argue in terms of your classroom delivery it's really seductive to be um, guided by an activity-driven curriculum. And, I'm not, and there's a juxtaposition here, really, in terms of primary, secondary, and how much emphasis and bias you should place on activities. And I appreciate if you're delivering to early years pupils, the, the number of activities in a lesson is probably going to be far more than it mm -hmm. would be if you're teaching, say, year 13. Um, but equally, there are elements of retrieval practice uh, that you can supplant and, and implement uh, at any phase, at any age that can actually save you as a teacher a lot of time, but are also really, really powerful and elements of deliberate practice in terms of your questioning of children so that you're, you're checking for understanding is kind of the fanciful phrase, but ensuring that the learning has stuck in their minds and that can save you a lot of time in, your, in planning, say, endless worksheets as one example. Mm -hmm. The flip side, of course, is that that takes a real skill to be able to ask, you know, pertinent questions at the right moments in lessons. Partly that comes with experience and partly that comes with your, your own personal confidence in your subject knowledge. Mm. So yeah. I'd say there, from a teacher perspective, they're, they're, they're the three things I would, would hone in on, which, again, go back to that idea of the house in dream, doing your job as a teacher really well. Just going back to um, the workload thing. Mm. <laughs> What examples have you got of how of, of taking away workload? Yeah, uh, we pieced together um, a workload charter as a school. Um, and this we put this together about two and a half years ago um, because we, we started to we wanted to piece together the things that we had done as an establishment to help address workload. And I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, it's uh, you know, it's the it's the finished deal. You know, I think there's still things we can be doing um, because if we. You know, we strip it back ultimately teaching is always going to be a hard job if we're yeah. expected to deliver you know 22 out of 25 periods a week um you know there's no way around it you are entertaining children pupils for five or six hours a day it's it's theater it's you know it's it's proper panto at the end of the day and it's exhausting yeah. and that alone in its own right that five or six hour you know set that you've got to do or gig is isn't is absolutely exhausting and you wouldn't oh, expect is. you know robbie williams as an example <laughs> to be on tour for you know nine months of the year every single day non-stop without a break and then you then go home and do loads more and, um, and twice the amount of hours as well <laughs> yeah. you know, just performing I mean that's why I did a performing arts degree before I went into teaching I was like it's just the same <laughs> but in terms of things that we could be doing you know just to um to, to address workloads uh you know, going to, to to the answer to your question um I mean, something that we, we did as an establishment is we um, had an email embargo at weekends and holidays. Now, I appreciate for some people, they'd probably sit there and say, oh, God, that would terrify me because that's the time I send mine. But what we deliberately did is 
culturally as an establishment, we changed all of our meetings um, so that the, this far more, as I've already alluded to previously, sort of subject team meetings. So that a lot of the emails can be eradicated through face to face discussion. And that is far more powerful. You, What we've found mm-hmm. is that uh, a lot of the um, misinterpretation of emails has kind of ceased. The volume of emails has drastically reduced. Staff have been really grateful for knowing that during holidays, they aren't gonna get emails from the senior team. You know, there isn't gonna be a Saturday night, midnight email from me saying, here's a data tracker, I need you to fill it in. Uh, and I think, you know- By my, Monday morning. By Monday morning, yeah. And I think through my career, I, I was a head of history for a number of years. And I used to get, I genuinely used to get emails at sort of 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, ready for Monday morning. And you could say, well, you can ignore that because you're not working, you're not at work, you know, it's your weekend. But the reality is you can't. And if you know that they're kind of chugging away, you know, over a weekend or a holiday, you're going to check them. And, and I think when I was, you know, an acting head, I used to get two or 300 a day in the holidays. It's, it's unsustainable. And there needs to be on that front alone a break for people. We aren't a 24-7 profession, I would argue, and we shouldn't be on, on that front. So that's one thing. And if, if I'll give you kind of two more then. Uh, I mean, the second one in terms of workload, which again, I've already alluded to, is giving the, the lion's share of directed time to staff as opposed to holding a staffing meeting for the sake of holding a staffing meeting because I can. Um, and, d- and generally that ends up being an initiative in a lot of schools as well yeah. oh let's implement this new initiative and you're like oh, I can't even remember what last week's was <laughs> and in terms of um, you know how we get the staff together if we go you know, pre-covid or a non-covid universe uh, we flipped our staff briefings um, around so instead of having you know 15 minutes of messages it's a short sharp institutional 15 minute training session on one element of classroom deliberate practice or a key um, institutional kind of message that we want to get across rather than just saying a reminder you know Thursday night's parents evening well everyone knows that it's in the calendar did mm. I really need to say it yet again uh, to the staff so we've been able to kind of give staff the lion's share of that directed time because Mm. of a recreative use of the time that we have. But that then allows staff, again, to focus on the housing dream, to focus on the curriculum, to focus on their actual teaching, on co-planning. And and that has absolutely long-term has reduced workload. Uh, I mean, a move that we made as a school was to move towards this isn't all through the school but we've we've brought in workbooks which I think are appropriate from probably year five up less so from say early years to year four but whilst the initial kind of creation of those took a lot of time um, now we've got them in place my word the amount of time that they've saved for staff is is huge Mm. Uh, and then the the third thing I would argue is having a really clear school improvement plan that is communicated really, really early to staff with one main driver for the establishment, which might be underpinned by three key things that you're trying to drive. So, again, to give you a kind of an example, um, this, ac- this academic year, our uh, improvement plan, even in this COVID universe, was doing the same but even better. Um, and that was the theme for the year. We wanted to slow everything completely down because we knew we had all these COVID systems we had to put into place. We're confident with what we've got in place, but we want to really deeply embed it. And kind of the, the drivers underpinning that were, were and are curriculum and um, teaching, behaviour and culture as a second kind of key principle and then strong outcomes for pupils. 
And those three things are always going to be the main drivers for our improvement plan. And from one academic year to the next, I always signpost in January what the improvement plan priorities are going to be for September. So I'm giving people kind of seven working months, so to speak, or nine or eight months in total to really think about it before September. And then we give kind of the, the devil in the detail just after Easter to the staff. So they've then got the whole of the summer term to really think about that those improvement plan priorities. And then we very deliberately give as an establishment two days off timetable for um, staff to work in teams to then think about their own um, year group or subject domain improvement priorities and what they're going to do in line with what the school is trying to drive so that everything interlinks and intermeshes but again that time commitment which is a big you know it's a big kind of expense i suppose you could argue mm. um, i feel is really really powerful because again we're saying we trust staff we're empowering you with you know clear directed time to, to do something that's hugely important and i guess it's putting your money where your mouth is if is it is something a priority or is it not and if something is, you've got to give time and indeed money um, to making it a priority. And if you don't, then it's not a priority. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So you're creating time and you've got one thing that you're focusing on. And that's really important as well. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The One Thing, um, but that's really helpful. You know, we can. I feel like the current situation especially for people who are working from home and have got children at home has been a really good example you can feel a lot of the time like you're trying to work while homeschooling whilst mm. doing the dishwasher and you don't do any of it very well yeah. and it's important to focus on one thing at a time and I can tell you that's been hard with a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home um, <laughs> but we're not here on the podcast day <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it would not sound like this um <laughs> But thank you so much. Where can um, where can we find out more about you and the school improvement that you're doing? Yeah, so I'm the Prince of the Dustin School. Um, if people want to visit the school when the world returns to normal, you're very welcome to do so. That's a nice offer. Uh, we've had about a thousand people visit the school in terms of, of um, people through the profession already. Mm -hmm. um, I could be found on Twitter at, and my Twitter handle is at Strickomaster. Um, in early 2022, we'll be hosting Research Ed Northampton, which we housed two years ago and we had to kind of bump it back because of COVID. Uh, my two books, Education Exposed and Education Exposed 2, are available via John Cat as well. And no doubt I'll probably be doing some more talks nationally when things get up and running again. Yeah. And before then, virtually. Virtually, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I found this chat so interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I challenge you to think about curriculum this week. Where could you read an article or listen to an audiobook that will give you confidence in making positive changes to the way learning is sequenced in your classroom and the proportion of knowledge and skills that are embedded? If you want to give any feedback about how this episode has impacted you, then just start up a conversation in the Teachers Podcast community on Facebook so that everyone else can get involved. Or you can join us on Clubhouse on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays or Thursdays. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.